Before you start listening, we just wanted to give you the heads up that this podcast discusses personal experiences of sexual harassment, which may be triggering. It also contains legal information, which isn't intended as legal advice, but we've included lots of useful contacts and resources in our show notes to help you find the individual support you need. I felt singled out, targeted by the lecturer in, in ways that mostly felt in, in embarrassing, I guess, and, and intimidating. But, you know, no actual um, groping or assault or, or anything that I felt broke the law. Does any of that feel illegal to you? Intimidation, feeling embarrassed, singled out? Hey, my name is Penny Terry and you're listening to the third season of Rule of Thumb. And in this season, we're talking about what everybody seems to be talking about, sexual harassment in workplaces and community spaces. And we're not just going to talk about the problems, but about the things we can all do to get started on the solutions. But perhaps one thing that's stopping us starting is we just don't understand the law. In this episode, we'll sort that out. So obviously, sexual harassment is unlawful. <laughs> yeah, obviously. We all knew that. Wait, what? Let's get some more details from Tasmania's Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, Sarah Bolt. And that's one of the biggest things that people don't understand. Often they think that racism, sexism, ageism, sexual harassment are things that yeah, pretty nasty and maybe you shouldn't do it as opposed to actually thinking the minute that you do do it, you've broken the law. It's as illegal as driving through a red light or talking on your mobile phone in a car. You said obviously it's illegal, but then you said people don't understand it. Why isn't it obvious? I think that's just because the message has never been pushed. Um, I mean, it's it's sad to think that we've had over in Tasmania, we've had it for since 1998, we've had legislation since 1975, there's been legislation on the mainland which sort of covered Australia. The Sex Discrimination Act, I think, came in in 1984, and yet we're still having... Uh, sort of parliamentary inquiries, we're still having people being sexually harassed, we're still having people's lives being ruined and we're still having people not knowing that what they're doing is unlawful. Would you know what sort of behaviour is unlawful? Yeah, so maybe one of the reasons for that is that the message has never been pushed. So you can consider this episode a pushing of that message. But it can't be the only thing. I wonder if another reason that we don't understand that sexual harassment is illegal goes right back to what we heard at the start of this episode from Elle, who talked about her experience at university. It really started when I came back from the summer break after my second year of uni, and I, I, looked, I actually looked quite physically different. I had um, developed an eating disorder, and I just remember encountering the lecturer in the corridor um, of the department and him, him kind of stopping me and going, oh, what happened to you? Did, did you stop eating? And um, I was very embarrassed in that moment and, and just said, oh, look, I've just been unwell. And um, his response was, uh, well, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Um, <laughs> and from there it developed in, I guess, really quite, quite subtle ways. And I think for me that made it all feel quite hard in terms of 
knowing whether to trust my own feelings about what was happening, um, but then also in terms of figuring out what to do about it to make it stop. (laughs) You mentioned that some of the harassment was subtle. Can you explain what it sounded like or what it looked like or how it felt for you? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the way it sort of took place was that he would ask me to stay behind um, almost every class and um, come to his office, uh, I guess on the premise that I was a, a reasonably high achieving student in his subject areas and that we would, you know, be able to talk about academic things. Um, and he had, you know, a small office. He would usher me in and close the door and then we would have to sit quite quite closely together in that space. And then usually he would, I guess, kind of regale me with his own academic achievements in a way that was, you know, really quite um, boastful. And I think based on the assumption that I would be flattered and, and, and enamoured of, of having this, this one-on-one attention with him. Um, he did ask me about my, my personal life and I think quickly probably established that, you know, I didn't have a boyfriend at the time. Um, he would uh, share things with me about his personal life in a way that was quite dismissive and, and you know, I do recall him complaining about his wife and his baby, um, you know, sort of giving me this impression that he had a less than ideal domestic life. Um, and then I think, you know, other than that, there were also these continuous invitations to attend extracurricular events outside um, the uni. He himself ran like a Friday night guest speaker event um, at a pub, so there was a lot of pressure to attend those. And when I did go, um, he would always approach me with the idea that I would um, have some drinks with him, maybe stay on after the event, potentially go out socially with him, again on the premise that it would be a benefit to my academic career to do so and that I would meet other interesting academic people. I always declined those events because I was really did not want to be alone with him, particularly in a in a kind of non-university setting. And yeah, and, and that always just kind of elicited sort of a snide remark from him in relation to, you know, how how I had another something else to do that was better than spending time time with him. Um, there were also invitations to come to his house. Yeah, I think when over time it became clear that I wasn't responding to those overtures, um, you know, either in on campus or outside of uni in these kind of extracurricular settings, he did begin to single me out in class and, um, you know, I guess draw attention to me in in ways that I felt were pretty humiliating. Uh, Probably the clearest example of that for me was um, once when he, yeah, he read out loud part of an essay that I'd written and said to the class, you know, that, that this was so overwritten that it was like a parody of academic writing and that I needed somebody to slap it out of me. Yeah, and and I think it's always, you know, raised that question for me of what, what actually is um, harassment or sexual harassment because there was nothing really overtly sexual or, you know, um, vulgar or, um, you know, physical, uh, um, anything overt about about that, but it was this continuous pressing of boundaries into spaces that, that I wasn't um, comfortable with and because, I guess, of his role as the lecturer um, who had that degree of um, power and who was responsible for my, you know, my marks and my progress at uni, how, how to be able to extract myself from that situation without harming my, my own interests, I guess. I wonder what you're weighing up in your head right now. Is it about 
whether or not this fits with what you thought sexual harassment could be. Like Elle said, when things are subtle, it doesn't really feel illegal, let alone really illegal, because there are some things that are really illegal, right? Like robbing a bank, it's pretty clear cut. But then there are other things that feel a little bit illegal, maybe like speeding, where most people have probably pushed the boundaries if they can't see it's hurting anyone. Yeah, I love that term, really illegal. I'm going to start using that. (laughs) This is Elise Whitmore. She's the principal solicitor at the Women's Legal Service Tasmania, who we're making this podcast for. I think you're right, and I think that um, a lot of people just think that it's technicality or that it's this stuff that we you know we have in policy and we look you know we read the policy when we first start work and it's ticked off but they don't really think that what what I am doing is sexual harassment or that it's really going to have that much of an impact that the implications for breaking that law aren't as serious as others. Have you got one of those policies? (laughs) Ever read it? (laughs) There are a few hurdles here that we need to get over. Let's start with that one that goes, but what I'm doing isn't illegal. It's an idea that came up multiple times when I met with a women's advocate I know as Madeline, who talked about her own experiences of sexual harassment. Sadly, there's examples that go right through my life right up to today. I started a new role and on the the orientation day, there was a senior man in the room Uh, who was senior in the organisation, who went through and rated the women's legs in the room. He looked at every woman, he used some choice words about their shoes and who had the best legs in the room. So... Do you remember the choice words? Yeah, who who was wearing fuck-me boots. Yeah. Yeah. What what happened in the room when he was doing that? Well, I was just mortified. Everybody was laughing because he was a, you know, he's a well-loved and well-known... person in the industry and I was looking around in a panic to think what's going to happen surely someone's going to reel this guy in nobody said a word everyone just laughed said oh that's just him I mean that's tricky there's there's power there's gender there's familiarity there's culture there's what's accepted there's so much going on there which is why this can be so challenging what skills have you learned that we could use in a situation like that Actually, I've reflected on that a lot because I didn't do anything. I was shocked and I was embarrassed and I'd wanted, it was my first day, I wanted to be liked, so I didn't say anything. And I reflected afterwards, what if I'd gone back to him afterwards privately and said, I know that you thought that that was fun and funny, but do you know how that made me feel? You, you, You rating the women in the room? You know, I wonder, I wonder if that would have actually had any effect potentially most likely people would just write you off as not being able to take a joke but you know it's worth a try isn't it did your ears prick up when we let the f-bomb slip and this is just a podcast not from a leader on an orientation day talking about people's legs is this the reason why it's so hard for us to realize that sexual harassment is really illegal because it's just a joke that we shouldn't feel upset or offended by. And look, while we could get pretty high horsey about this, I wonder if we really do spend a fair bit of time thinking this, and not just men, but all of us, as we try and work out why this stuff feels wrong. I feel 
really confused, I think, as well when I look back at the way that he treated me um, and the things that he said. And I feel confused because it's still an aspect where you think, no, I, I know this is inappropriate. I know it's sexual harassment. It makes me feel uncomfortable and upset. Um, but he's laughing. You know, maybe I'm kind of still getting it wrong in my head and I feel really conflicted and confused about that even now. Yeah. This is someone I know as Jo and we'll get to hear more about her story. People will give lots of reasons why what they're doing isn't sexual harassment. Henry Peel is an employment, industrial relations and workers' compensation lawyer who deals almost exclusively with workers and he's heard lots of them. I think that there's an idea out there about being proud to be politically incorrect or being a, an equal opportunity offender. Um, an idea that, well, if I'm a little bit un-PC, if I act in a way which is a little bit off-colour, it doesn't matter because there's nothing, there's nothing really serious, there's no malice behind it. That's just how I am and people can, people can like it or leave it. Uh, I think that often what we're talking about is an expression of privilege, which probably doesn't think about itself in those terms, but is really uh, taking a bit of a power trip in marginalising others. And maybe just get a new joke. <laughs> Stop being so lazy. Think of a new joke. Yeah, uh, look, often we're dealing with things like power hierarchies that dress themselves up in things like tradition, that dress themselves up in things like humour, um, that dress themselves up as something other than what they really are. Uh, and the person who wants to go around and act in a way which is har harassing a person or harassing a group or marginalising a group or being sexist or being racist or being homophobic within the workplace is playing out a power structure whether they realise it or not. There's a bit of a, a common thought that it's just a, a few bad blokes. It's no one I know. How do we deal with that kind of mentality? I think that that's a question which is really caught up in the moment that we're in. What's become apparent, as we've seen particularly a lot of these high-profile institutional cases of harassment and discrimination, is that some organisations, some professions, some cultures have been pretty good at sweeping their problems under the carpet and that has obviously perpetuated itself uh, over very, very many years. I think that anybody who thinks that these issues are somehow isolated, who thinks that they're rare, uh, thinks that they don't apply to my profession or to my workplace, uh, probably is coming at it from a perspective of naivety because I think that the journey that we're on as a society at the moment is realising that these things have for a long time been more prevalent than a lot of society has regarded them as being. Are you wondering how prevalent? You might have heard of the Jenkins Report. 
Australian Sex Discrimination Commissioner Kate Jenkins released the Respect at Work report in 2020, which confirms that sexual harassment is widespread and pervasive, that one in three people have experienced sexual harassment at work in the last five years, and in the vast majority of cases, it is perpetrated by a man, and in many cases, ongoing over an extended period. One in three. But if we're sweeping things under the carpet, if we're dressing things up in things like tradition or humour or we think it doesn't apply to my organisation, it's no wonder it doesn't feel illegal. So let's get the legalities and check in again with lawyer Elise Whitmore. We have a few different pieces of legislation, but most of them have a common thread that it is any unwelcome sexual advance or contact um, that a reasonable person in the circumstances would think is offensive. Unwelcome. Is that the tricky bit? Is that the bit that people have trouble understanding or gauging? I don't even know what the word is. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the term unwelcome really gives us what we would call a subjective test. So how does that person feel? How have you made that person feel and that, that can be really difficult to establish because we have lots of different types of relationships with the people that we work with. Um, we know each other for a really long time. We form friendships in our workplaces. So there's no easy answer that I can give you um, in saying that what you are saying to someone is going to be unwelcome because it is that subjective test. How wide-ranging are the behaviours? Oh, wow. Um, so in the sexual harassment context, um, we're looking at people making comments about someone's figure in a dress and how um, it really accentuates her curves. Um, we might be talking about someone making a declaration of love to a colleague. Um, it might be physical. So I've heard of people being grabbed or touched or rubbed up against it can be inappropriate posters on the wall or an inappropriate screensaver on a computer. It's not necessarily me grabbing your butt or saying, hey, sexy, you know, how about it? Um, it can be comments about other people. Really inappropriate comments um, about my appearance and about what they'd like me to do with them. And so suddenly he arranged for it to be him and I out in the bush together. He started bringing me at home. You know, remarks about my breasts, you know, calling me names and, you know, commenting on my clothes and my weight and touching me. I was pregnant at the time. It was pretty awful. And old mate slaps me on the bottom and I turn around and I said, that's not on. And his mates were cheering him on and I said, nah, that's it. I'm not serving any of you. And he said, if we share a bed, then I get to pay a discounted rate because we don't have two beds to clean. There are a lot more to these stories and you'll hear them explained throughout this season. But what we've got now is some examples, a definition. Now let's do a test, a subjective test. Let's call back in employment lawyer Henry Pill. We dealt with um, a very difficult example a few years ago where a uh, a tradesperson um, had gone in as the only female um, in a heavily male-dominated environment and a lot of the abuse that that person copped was around banter 
um, that was perceived to be banter um, by an extensively older and extensively male workforce um, who would be making jokes about um, really, really unfortunate uh, things like any time um, someone was required to bend over, there'd be a comment about uh, this, the sexualisation of, of that conduct or the use of lubricant would become some sort of double entendre about uh, about using lubricants. I'm just going to jump in here because there's the test. What did your face do when Henry said bend over or lubricant? You're smirking? We know this joke. We get this joke. We've made this joke. This stuff, this kind of talk is so commonplace. And now we're being told it could actually be illegal? Yeah. And here's why. We dealt with a, a, a situation where someone was subject to really, really nasty repeated behaviour that I think people around them believed was, genuinely believed was lighthearted and funny. But what it had was a cumulative effect where a person uh, was subject to the same conduct day in, day out uh, by multiple people. Uh, and ultimately that, that, that took its toll. If we go back to the speeding metaphor, is it not until we see the impact our behaviour will have that we'll keep doing it? Maybe understanding the impact is the speed hump that could slow us down. Tom Windsor is a mental health advocate. In fact, he's the captain of the Mobart Mobros, a Movember fundraising team. And he's become really comfortable with having conversations about changing behaviour. It's a, it's a tricky one, I think, um, because I think if you, if you said to 90% of, 99% of men, would you want to hurt this person or harm this person? Um, of course not. No, I've got nothing against that person. It's, it's whether or not they consider that behaviour to be, to be harmful or not. And, and that, is, that is where we still, we still do have a long way to go. Um, it's the behaviour that we don't yet consider harmful that is probably doing the most damage. Uh, and going back to mental health advocacy, awareness was where it started. You know, we started addressing stigma, the stigma involved with with, with being a man that has perpetrated this culture um, in Australia for, for so many years. Um, and the same challenges will be met, met here with this issue. So I, I think similarly, you start with, with awareness and education, and then you move into action, which is probably where we're at right now. Right then, let's get into the action. And the first barrier to break down is that excuse of, but I didn't mean to offend anyone. Let's see what the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner, Sarah Bolt, thinks of that. People often say that, and regardless of what the element of discrimination is, they will say, I didn't mean to do that. Um, but the Act is unique in the sense that the Act doesn't care at all about what your intention is. And in the area of law, that's quite unusual because intent is often one of the elements in committing a crime, for example. If you've ever watched a, a murder movie, you will know. That's right. Whereas in this case, intention is uh, not something that we look at. We just think, okay, well, it might mitigate it to a degree, but it certainly won't excuse it. And what we look at, or what the legislation looks at, is through the eyes of the person who's been impacted upon. So it's not the intent, 
It's the impact that your actions, your words, your um, text messages, your Facebook messages or whatever it happens to be, whatever the medium is that you have used to offend somebody or insult them or ridicule them, that's all that counts. Not that I didn't mean to do it, I thought it was pretty funny or she should have really been fairly flattered. None of those things count if the impact on that person is detrimental and the caveat being that a reasonable person would also think, yeah, I think in the circumstances that behaviour would have been intimidating or cringeworthy or something. So the law is clear that it's not about whether you meant it to offend someone, it's whether or not it did. But as we heard earlier, it's a subjective test. So what are some tips to help us navigate the grey? Let's get back to women's advocate, Madeline. I think that there might still be a part of our culture that actually thinks that women in some way enjoy being sexually harassed, like that they might take it as a compliment that somebody's attracted to them. Um, I think some men struggle to see an appropriate line when they're attracted to a woman, they want to ask a woman out, and very often overstep that line into somebody's um, you know, somebody's at work. You don't want to be told you're attractive at work. It's of, it's of no consequence to you, but I think that that's still a bit uh, tricky for some people. If there are women listening who think, oh, actually, I do like to be told that I'm attractive or I'm looking nice today, what might you say to them? Or have you come up against that before? Yeah, actually, that's an interesting one because it's lovely to be told you're attractive in an appropriate circumstance and, and situation. I, I have a lot of conversations with um, men who who struggle with this, who say, oh, well, I'm, I, that's it, I'm not allowed to say anything nice to any, anyone anymore. And I think a really good test is it's perfectly fine to compliment something to someone about something that they've chosen. For example, I love your skirt, Penny, but um, I love your bum, Penny. No, that's that's not okay. That's a good test to give yourself. Is it something that the person's chosen, the way they've chosen to wear their hair? But again, you can often get drawn into this conversation about being about compliments. And of course, sexual harassment is a huge spectrum. And most of it is not to do with compliments. It's about making women feel unsafe. It's about sexualising women when that's just not okay. So, yeah, it's really that, that compliments thing is a way to sort of obfuscate the issue, I think. Madeline went on to tell me that there are no blanket rules for this stuff. It's all about context. Can you remember when the road safety campaigns used to put cars that had been in car accidents on the side of the road to help us see and then understand the impacts of speeding? Let's hear about the impacts of sexual harassment from lawyers who hear and see these impacts more than most. Over the years, the women that I've spoken to, um, they feel increasingly anxious within the workplace to the extent that it can make them psychologically unwell. Um, They hate going to work. They hate walking in the door there. Um, They don't know how to respond. They feel like they don't have any power to say anything or to make reports. And over time, I think what that does, and it can be a really short period of time, is that they just end up leaving those workplaces. You may often deal with people who have uh, really, really serious injuries as a result of that, where they can't return to their career uh, and where they find themselves with with really significant damage. And and those are the, the, the sorts of cases which often find their way into courts. 
It can affect everybody so differently, but some people might even just not even be able to go shopping in the same area where the person lives, even if they've been shopping there for 10 years in fear of running you know, into them. Some people might completely, let's just say the sexual harassment occurred within the in a hotel or working in a pub. That's what they really, really love doing. And then that became so untenable, they left and they never, they just completely avoid that industry because, you know, I don't feel safe in there because of the culture of what I've experienced. Some people even become a little agoraphobic, even I don't want to go out. Or it might have a, an impact on their own private, their personal relationship. If they're in a very comfortable relationship, then something happens of a sexual nature that can have an impact on what was a very healthy personal relationship with somebody and taint that because they've got all this sort of angst about it and the other person doesn't quite get it. Well, it's all over now and they sort of, so it's so personal for many people. Let's get back to Elle, who we met right at the start of this episode. It's been years now since she was at uni. What are the impacts for her? I do think about it fairly often and I think that that's um, partly because I think it's really when you get older that you're able to look back on that that time and that experience to to understand how it um, shaped you or or shifted your trajectory um, in a way that you can't possibly know at the at the time or in or in that moment. The way that I look back on it now also is is in the sense of that kind of continuous experience that we have as as women of sort of constantly navigating and managing our own safety and I would say that I am um, really quite hypervigilant around those boundary violations that are kind of liable to happen (laughs) at any point whether I'm you know whether you're walking down the street or whether you're in a workplace or you know online spaces yeah I think it had it had significant impacts on me at the time you know in terms of my own anxiety and hypervigilance but then it also had those longer term consequences on my um, yeah, my, my life trajectory, yeah, on, on my, my professional kind of ambitions, yeah. So, does understanding the impact make sexual harassment feel illegal? Are we breaking down the idea that it's not really hurting anyone so it doesn't matter? It is illegal, it is hurting people, and it doesn't matter if you just meant it as a joke. So, we're sorted, aren't we? Not quite. Because no matter how illegal sexual harassment is, there's another big hurdle we need to get over before the law will be useful. Did you ever do anything about it? Nothing. Did you ever say nothing? nothing? I didn't tell anyone, apart from my boyfriend. I just said no and hoped that he didn't push it because I wouldn't have known what to do. Now, that's only part of Katie's story. Her reasons for not reporting were much bigger than that. And these big problems have solutions, which we'll talk about on our next episode of Rule of Thumb. In the meantime, if you would like a hard copy of The Legalities of Sexual Harassment, then you can go nuts in our show notes where we've put links to all sorts of resources and training options. And while you're clicking away, if you could leave us a review or share this episode with someone you know, we hope we'll start to see change quicker. My name is Penny Terry, and you've been listening to Rule of Thumb. It's a podcast for the Women's Legal Service, Tasmania. This project was funded by the Tasmanian Government through the Department of Communities as part of the COVID-19 Family Violence Response.